I fear for this place. Everyone's got a theory how it started, about Castle Rock's original sin. Was it the Puritans who settled here? Or was it the mills where we grew rich by scraping God's earth until it bled? Was that when he turned his back on this town? Hello everyone, welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I will review one entry from the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, and this week I am turning my attention not to one of Stephen King's written works, but an adaptation of not necessarily a particular Stephen King work, but a continuation, a celebration of many of Stephen King's works and the philosophy of Stephen King himself. This week, we are going to return to his most famous town in a series of episodes that will celebrate and review and analyze Hulu's latest show, Castle Rock. So I was very excited about this. As you know, if you are a Stephen King fan and you're listening to this, then you know the excitement about what it means to be a Stephen King fan uh, in 2018. In the summer of 2018, we have It. We are one year out just about from from It. Um, We have Mr. Mercedes to look forward to. We had 1922 when Gerald's came and some other movie that came out last summer. I can't remember what, and maybe it's better that it stays that way. But this summer, we have... Um, we have Castle Rock. That was something that I was looking forward to, and um, I am recording this the day after the, the first episode aired. Um, I still have episodes two and three to get through, but I do want to focus one particular episode on the buildup to Castle Rock and my thoughts of, of um, the pilot episode. So aside from reviewing the first episode, I am going to read some listener emails um, because I've had some emails building up and I want to make sure that I share them before I I forget about them. So up first, we have Travis who writes, Hey, Constant Reader, I hope you're doing well. Just a quick line to say how much I appreciated your most recent episode listing all of the upcoming Stephen King releases. Super excited about a Doctor Sleep adaptation. I feel this info might have been too new to include in your episode, but what I'm most excited about is Shudder's recently announced Creepshow series. I can only hope and pray for a possibility that they might revisit The Crate or The Raft. I know they stress that it would be like Tales from the Crypt in its format, which is perfect since that's what King and Romero's intent was with the film. I hope the stories are mostly originals, tailor-made for the series, and it's pulpy, grotesque, and comedic style, and they don't water down the formula. I want a live-action horror comic just like the original film, damn it. Anyways, enough rambling on my part. What are your thoughts on this? Excited? Uncaring? And what stories would you like to see or past Creepshow stories brought back or expanded upon? Take care, Travis. Travis. I would love to see a live-action creep show anthology. I think it's a great idea. I think that the market is ripe for it, and I think that Shudder is really making a name for itself, by the way. Um, so this is that's definitely an app to, to, look, to look out for. I think there's only going to be more of a draw for those in the horror field to start creating original content there. Um, we have Joe Bob Briggs, who just returned to Shudder, um, 
and Channel Zero, um, if you want to uh, watch any of the Channel Zero seasons, which are coming out with great frequency, then you'll want to get Shudder. That's definitely a show that you want to keep an eye on because it is the most terrifying show on television, and that is a horror anthology, season-long anthology done right. Now, for what Creep Show would be, for me, I would like it to, yeah, be something like Tales from the Crypt because I have very distinct memories um, of the, the, the early 90s on Saturday nights, watching Tales from the Crypt and uh, hearing the, the voice of Buster Bunny um, uh, do the voice of the Crypt Keeper. And it's crazy to think back that uh, at, there was a time when there was a very, very adult, for adults, not for kids, uh, live action um, Tales from the Crypt show and there was also a corresponding cartoon for kids as well. It was just a different day and age. But yes, uh, Tales from the Crypt, very much like Creep Show. It was fun. It was goofy. It was schlocky. It was scary. And yes, I, I hope that um, the, the upcoming uh, Creep Show anthology does the same thing. And I hope that they honor the, the visual style of Creep Show with the, the, the comic book format. Um, I love, I love the beginning. I love it, the beginning of the, the, the first creep show. And so I hope that they, they keep that up. And I think that that's appropriate. I, I know that we don't have a lot of horror comics anymore. And I will actually get into that once I get to my review of Lock and Key. So when I am done reviewing all of Castle Rock, that will be the next go around on the Stephen King. I'll buckle down and get through my review of Joe Hill's Lock and Key, which was a horror comic showing the world that uh, horror comics, um, there is still a market for them. And uh, it's that was definitely one that that was done extremely well, and I look forward to seeing that live ad- live action adaptation uh, hit Netflix um, sometime in the future. So there is a lot of good stuff coming our way. In terms of what stories I would like to see adapted, um, I, I would need time to think. I'm not quite sure. But yeah, I, I think that allowing horror... Um, horror masters and some up-and-comers a chance to tell their own stories I think would be great to adapt some Stephen King stories would be great Um, and just maybe if it also allowed uh, like a masters of horror sort of format the the way that um, you know in the early 2000s we had that where every Every episode was done by someone well-renowned in in the horror in the horror field. Just take a stab at just a standalone story. I, I think that that would be great. So there's a lot to look forward to, and I think that the there, there's nothing wrong with getting a, a nice dose of horror um, and a different story every week. I think that's a great thing for all of us, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about uh, Creepshow. And up next, we have Tyne, who writes, Hi there, I wrote you just before Christmas, and you were kind enough to read my email on the air. You don't have to with this one. I just wanted, once again, thank you for a great podcast and some awesome recommendations. As you might recall, I'm from Denmark, and this May I had the chance to visit my friend who lives in Boston. It was my first time abroad, and I had two wonderful weeks walking around the old city watching a Red Sox game and chilling in the parks. Sorry, guys, if you hear um, some noise in the background, there is a ton of rain. 
pouring down. Um, being so close to Maine, I just had to visit Bangor. I might have went anyway, but hearing your interview with Stu Tinker from SK Tours really got me excited for the trip, and we booked a tour with Stu. Turned out it was just me, my friend, my husband, and one other guy, and we went way over time and had such a great day driving around Bangor. It was such a surreal experience standing in front of Stephen King's house, and Stu was the best tour guide imaginable. So thank you for that. On the tour, I was wearing my Cotet 19 Losers Club t-shirt, another great recommendation on your part. It's a bit embarrassing, but I'm currently the owner of no less than nine t-shirts, a hoodie, and four tote bags from Cotet 19, and I can't seem to stop uh, wanting even more. Also, I wore the RIP Church t-shirt on my visit to Salem, which seemed fitting. I've been waiting for your review of the Mr. Mercedes series because, like you, I never really liked the book that much. The series, however, I just loved it. Now I heard your review, and you pinpoint the things I also really liked, especially Brendan Gleeson's performance. Just wanted to wish you a great summer, and once again, thank you for a great podcast. Long days and pleasant nights, time. P.S. Next week, I'll be having minor surgery, and I'm planning on giving Twin Peaks to return a rewatch while listening to your Hanging with Agent Cooper podcast when I'm bored on my couch. So thank you in advance. Tyne, thank you. Thank you for the support of not just this show, but also Hanging with Agent Cooper. And those of you who are... Fans of uh, David Lynch, um, then you might want to give Hanging with Agent Cooper, my other podcast, a shot. So just a couple things uh, to to just comment on. I'm so glad that you had a chance to visit Bangor, and I'm so glad that you had a chance to um, meet Stu and go on the Stephen King tours. Um, I'm actually going to talk about Stu uh, later on in this episode, so I thought it was appropriate to, to read this email. Um, and yes, everyone, I haven't plugged, I haven't plugged them in a while, but I, I really, for those of you who have been listening for a while, you'll know what I'm about to say next, but for those of you who might be new, um, there is a fantastic Stephen King t-shirt, uh, website out there. Um, and you can listen to my interview with Matt, um, from last summer in which he and I just geeked out about all things Stephen King. And we talked about his creative process, but, uh, um, Cotet 19, all you have to do is Google that, Cotet 19 t-shirts, and you're going to see very imaginative, clever, subtle, and faithful Stephen King t-shirts. Um, and and the, the thing that, that you need to know about this, that, the, that there's a distinction between he and other Stephen King t-shirt companies out there is that his is licensed. He actually took the time to, to go about and do this the right way. So you're getting quality t-shirts um, done by someone who... You know, took the time to um, you know work with the lawyers in order to make sure that he wasn't doing anything illegal and that any money is is going in you know the the right places. So um, there are a lot of knockoff uh, T-shirt sites out there, but uh, Matt's is the real deal. So um, I would recommend, strongly recommend Cotet uh, nineteen. Um, I, I I think that you'll absolutely enjoy it. Okay, and up next we have Charlie, who writes, Hi, I just discovered your podcast. I've been a King fan close to about 40 years. I have taken a break from reading his novels over the years. Um, But over the last few years, I'm on a King tear, trying to catch up reading a couple of his novels at the same time. Anyway, I just wanted to say I'm enjoying your podcast. I'm skipping around listening to older episodes on the novels I had read many years ago, which is, again, inspiring to reread his older stuff. Keep up the good work. Charlie, Charlie, thank you for writing in, and um, thank you for for catching up on Stephen King stuff. And you know, the good news is you have a ton of episodes that you can listen to um, regarding all of those episodes. 
or all those books. And then we have Megan who writes, Hi, I have just listened to your podcast episode on Lisey's story. I love your podcast. I know this is an incredibly old episode, but I felt a need to email you to just comment on your criticism of the concept of Lisey's story being only a retelling of Scott's life story. The entire novel is a telling of trauma and memory and the complex way that we relive and experience traumatic events. In full disclosure, I have studied this book in a class based entirely on Stephen King and have probably analyzed this story more than even King himself would like, so my opinion is wildly shaped by that. Lisey's memories of Scott, the past, are written in the present tense, while the current events of her life are written in the past tense, showing Lisey coping with the trauma of losing Scott and how through her struggle to come to terms with her loss, she is essentially living through their shared memory. The subtle incorporation of Booyah Moon I don't find as a missed opportunity of King to have elaborated. Like you pointed out, the book is Lisey's story. So Booyah Moon is just another part of her working through her own trauma and memory and moving forward through what I understand as an aspect of collective memory. I think the novel is a less um, direct telling of marriage and love, but more a working through of memory. I see it as a story of finding yourself through memory because memory is essentially the construct of who you are. I found Scott's story and subsequently his father's story told through Lisi a really great way of framing the narrative and showing the dispersion of trauma and memory, not just through one individual, but how it moves through and affects the people in their lives. I'm aware of how much I have repeated trauma and memory, so I will stop myself now. And although this episode is about three years old, thank you for taking the time to read this email. I really enjoy your podcast, and I look forward to listening more. Uh, Megan. Megan, thank you for this high-level email and analysis. Um, So I, I unfortunately, am not uh, as fresh with my analysis of Lisey's story um, as I was when I, you know, reread it for the purposes of of the podcast. Um, So I would need to reread it with the points that you just made in mind. But I will say this, even without rereading it, um, this is an incredible interpretation, and it definitely makes me reconsider the thoughts that I I had pointed out. Um, You know, if you took the time to truly study this novel, um, then then, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm 100% sure that there are aspects and components and interpretations of this novel that... Um, went over my head or I didn't pick up the, the first time or, or the second time around. Um, your, your analysis of the, the tenses, um, that, that's definitely something that makes me want to go back and, and look at that. And that's an interesting avenue to explore specifically what, um, what it means. Um, so that I'm, I'm so thankful for when um, I get an email like that because it, it truly makes me stop and think um, and, uh, you know, reflect upon, um, you know, my opinion and, and just mull it over with the, the new information that's been given to me. So, Megan, thank you very, very much for that email. Um, if you have any other thoughts, always feel free to, to write in again. And we have Mike who writes, Greetings again, constant host. Since you have recently resumed releasing Stephen King podcasts regularly again, I thought I would write in again. I've mentioned in previous emails that I read approximately 55 of King's books, and presently I only have three left. So there's, pro- there's progress with that, and with all of the TV uh, movie show releases recently and still to come, it's a great time to be a fan of King's, as you've mentioned a few times yourself. 
but the main reason I'm writing is to express my appreciation of your podcast. Like you, I've always considered myself a voracious reader and an aspiring writer. I never much had the confidence or desire to really pursue getting my work published, but hearing your plugs at the beginning of shows all those times motivated me to finally pursue submitting short stories and exploring that market. I'm happy to say that one of them was selected for publication in March and the anthology containing it should be available sometime this year. And in terms of reading, I hit a major lag from late December through the end of May. I finished only one book, Dune by Frank Herbert, if you were curious, and parts of another, Sleeping Beauties, coincidentally. I think everyone hits a lag in terms of reading, but this was extended. Granted, things happened during those months, stress of having to get rid of my old car and buy a new one without much notice, an extended period of stress at work due to a troublesome worker I supervise, a family tragedy, and what I thought was a blooming romantic relationship leading directly into a metaphorical brick wall that kept me unmotivated to pick up a book. But I can honestly say that your podcast returning on a weekly basis to analyze my favorite author reignited my interest in both reading and writing. I've gotten through three books since late June, and I hope to keep up this current pace uh, permanently. It's amazing how important those two things are to people like us, isn't it? Anyway, thanks for playing a part in getting me back into the swing of things. Lastly, have you encountered Stephen King's short story, The Night of the Tiger? It's not included in any of his short story collections, but my dad has a horror anthology with the story included. Um, Thanks again, Mike. Mike, um, so I'm so glad that you got back on your horse, man. That's great. Um, So no need to thank me. Um, I I really appreciate it, but um, I I, I think that you you need to give yourself all the credit there for for pushing through. for pushing through when when life gets hard. Um, so I have not read The Night of the Tiger as far as I know. I don't think that I have, but that's definitely something that I, I can look into. Um, and yeah, now that you have mentioned um, books that you have read, I, after Sleeping Beauties, after I read that in December, I don't really recall reading too much between that and The Outsider, actually. Um, I did read Annihilation because I had seen the movie um, and I was really taken with the movie, so I wanted to read the book. Um, And what's interesting about Annihilation is that uh, you can read the book, you can watch the movie, and you're going to get two different experiences completely because they are two completely different stories, basically. Um, if you want to know that I, maybe it's because I saw it first, but I prefer the movie, um, over the book. The, the book left me a little cold, unfortunately. I really, I really, really wanted to like it. Um, and then I finally finished, um, The Fisherman. Now I, I talked a little bit about that in a previous episode. I had ordered it, um, last year, um, and I started reading it last year, um, but it, uh, it tackles some very, very heavy subject matter about the death of family members. Uh, so I started reading it last summer and I just wanted, I wanted light reading, not, not that. So I, I put it away, but it was always on my bookshelf. Even when I moved and I was in the new house, I made sure that I was near the bookshelf because I, or my, my nightstand, because I knew that there was going to be a time when I needed to read something and it, I had ordered it. I had heard good things about it and I, I wanted to dive into it. And so, um, after kind of a, a hard start of me getting back into it, I, I, I 
I found myself understanding what John Langan was doing with it. Um, and once I understood, quote unquote, the game he was playing in terms of his writing, um, I was absorbed. It is a, in many ways, an off-putting book, um, but it feels very much a contemporary interpretation of what made H.P. Lovecraft's works so powerful. Um, you have your typical run-of-the-mill people who are coming up against something so vast and alien that its its alienness is is unimaginable to to our brains and the horror comes from how much it dwarfs us both in concept in size um in in if you think about it too much what that means for us how insignificant we are and the lives that we lead so it's it's heavy stuff but also like H.P. Lovecraft, it's, it's our story, the stories that we're getting um, in The Fisherman are also getting retold by other characters in the novel. There's actually, a, a, it's structured very interestingly, um, where there is for a couple hundred pages in the middle of the novel, the narrative switches completely from our main characters to the story that gives background necessary in order to conclude um, the, the the story of our, our main characters. But the this flashback story that's being told to us is just as gripping, just as captivating, if not more, than the, the, the story that's taking place in, in the present day. Um, and it also kind of has almost like a, a folklorish um, fairy tale quality to it that I, I very much enjoyed. So I really enjoyed the fisherman, and I was sad to put that one way. Um, it's a, it's a. There are some bleak concepts in there, um, but then again, the the book is is tackling some pretty bleak subject matter. So, you know, I that was that was one that I I read, and just recently I. Um, I really got into Paul Tremblay. I know that I'm a couple years behind on him, but I knew that The Cabin at the End of the World was coming out. So I had been hearing good things. And so when that came out, I wanted to go out, you know, and just give myself something to read. So I got it. I devoured it in basically the span of two days. It was phenomenal. Um, It is a edge-of-your-seat, anxiety-inducing, lean, mean horror novel um, that, as I discovered by reading his other novels, is open up to interpretation. So that's the the unknown and the ambiguity that comes from these novels and leaving it up to you in some ways is the strength of of him. It makes it no less horrific. It makes it even more horrific. Um, But this is a home invasion story that is told much differently than, than other home invasion stories. And uh, if you want a hard-hitting lean, I mean, this guy does so much with so little, and he just um, he just he drills right down the bone uh, in in a short amount of time. So he packs a punch. So I read that, and then I said, okay, well now I'm into Paul Tremblay. Then I read um, A Head Full of Ghosts, which again it did not disappoint. Um, and it was a perfect convergence of your, your classic exorcism story um, with reality television and the day and age in which we live. Um, so that was great. And then I read The Disappearance um, at Devil's Rock, which conjured, for those of you who kind of need that, that Stranger Things fix, 
I would recommend that. A um, bunch of kids on bikes, um, messing around in the woods. One goes missing. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like something that you might want to read? Then you probably want to go out and check um, the disappearance at Devil's Rock. So there's a lot of good stuff out there, guys. Um, I, uh, I'm going to be reading Bird Box at some point this summer, um, and I've heard nothing but good things about that as well. So there, there's a lot of good books out there. And, and yes, like, um, like Mike, I have found myself many times just in a rut, in a lull where I haven't been reading. And, um, you know, one of the reasons is, you know, for the, the purposes of this podcast, when a new Stephen King book or a Joe Hill book comes out, it, it isn't just reading it, you know, and there's, there's work that goes into it. And I can't, there's something to be said about me just being able to enjoy a book, you know, and I really, really like it. So I've been taking the time that this summer has granted me to, to just, you know, read a good book. You can't, you can't put enough value into how important that is for, for your soul and your, your well-being. Okay, now we have Zach who writes, Dear Stephen King cast, I recently started listening to your podcast and I can't get enough. My first experience that I had with Stephen King happened uh, when I was around five or six years old. The It miniseries was on TV and the first thing I remember is seeing Pennywise in the storm drain talking with Georgie. I was hypnotized and I wanted to know how the clown got down there. He seemed nice and friendly and had me completely fooled. The next thing I remember is running upstairs to my parents because I saw Pennywise's razor sharp teeth. I am still afraid of clowns to this day and it surprised me that I really enjoyed the It remake. Toward the end of my senior year in high school, my English teacher would pop in different Stephen King movies because he wanted to make us aware who this man was and why he is so great. My first Stephen King book I read was Full Dark, No Stars and I remember loving it. As of right now, my favorite book is between It and 1122-63, but The Dark Tower is the reason why King is my favorite author. I love the series, and I love seeing how it connects with King's other works. I am one of the few that actually enjoyed the movie, and I read that Amazon is developing the TV series. I hope this happens because it will give The Dark Tower a second chance to impress its viewers and show its audience that this is a story worth telling. Many of my friends don't like to read, and my girlfriend isn't a King fan, so I'm happy that I found your podcast. I like how you encourage our participation in the conversation, so keep up the good work. I look forward to listening to your thoughts on future episodes. Your constant listener, Zach. Zach, thank you so much, um, and I'm jealous that you enjoyed the Dark Tower movie. Um, and yes, like you, I hope that the Dark Tower Amazon show comes to fruition. It's just my hope that it is more adherent to what makes the dark tower the dark tower um i want to enjoy it i really really do but i i want it to be weird the way that stephen king made it weird not an interpretation i just want it to be the dark tower that's all that i want i just want it to be the dark tower is that really too much to ask um so zach thank you for for writing in um, okay, guys, so that's all that I have for emails right now. But if you have any thoughts on Stephen King, if you have any thoughts on Castle Rock, um, then write into stephenkingcast at yahoo.com because, like Zach said, I don't like doing this alone. I like your thoughts. I want to share your thoughts. I want to be able to engage in a conversation and facilitate a conversation between everyone listening because we are all part of a much larger content. Um, so guys, you can always write into Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com. Also, I, I don't have any fresh reviews that I'm going to read this week, but if you have any time on your hands, head on over to iTunes and leave a review, um, because that would help me out greatly. 
Okay, guys, so here it is. Um, I want to get into Castle Rock Episode 1, Severance. So we don't have a Wikipedia summary, but I did find a recap of the first episode from Vulture by Brian Telecaro. Telecaro? Telecaro. Talarico, Talarico, Brian Talarico, uh, who writes, The premise of Hulu's highly anticipated Castle Rock introduces viewers to a dozen characters of varying degrees of importance and sets several subplots spinning in a way that implies they will likely collide and lead to misery. Inspired by the setting and characters of Stephen King, Castle Rock isn't directly based on any of the famous author's writings, but has clearly been influenced by it in several ways, including some familiar faces, but more indirectly, it's thematically inspired by the modern master of horror. It's an episode about how you can't come home again, and you may regret it if you do, a theme that runs throughout King's entire body of work. Severance is complex enough in terms of plotting that feels most helpful to pull apart the various characters we meet and what we know so far instead of just a traditionally chronological recap. Welcome to Castle Rock. So up first he writes about Harry Deaver, sorry, Henry Deaver, played by Andre Holland as an adult and Khalil Harris as a child. Henry Deaver is a classic Stephen King character in that he's the protagonist coming home to a small town and rekindling memories of traumatic past. When Henry was a child, he disappeared off the face of the earth for 11 panic-stricken days. As the entire town of Castle Rock tried to find him, Henry's father succumbs to the elements dying the bitter cold. It was a lo- it was a local lawman named Alan Pangborn who mysteriously found him on a frozen lake as if he had literally appeared out of nowhere. Instantly, Alan knew something was wrong because Henry showed absolutely no signs of impact from the cold. Where had he been? It could have been outside in the brutal Maine winter for a week and a half. It couldn't have been. Theorizing that Henry merely ran away and had been hiding someplace warm, the town blamed him for the death of his father, basically pushing him as far away from Maine as possible all the way down to Texas. That's where the adult Henry Deaver works, mostly unsuccessfully to get people off of death row. And he's failing in his latest high-profile case. He receives news that someone at Shawshank Penitentiary in Maine recently said his name, possibly even as a means to request his legal counsel. He reluctantly returns home to Castle Rock and into the most unusual case he'll ever be a part of. And then we have Alan Pangborn. Played by Scott Glenn in the present day, Alan Pangborn is the most familiar face for King fans, having played major roles in Needful Things and The Dark Half and being referenced in other written works in King's career. The young Pangborn found Henry Deaver, but the adult Henry is startled to discover the older Pangborn having kind of taken his father's place in the Weaver home. He even wears the shirts of Henry's dad and has a frequent flyer relationship with his mother, Ruth, played by Sissy Spacek. Ruth shows signs of dementia, leading Henry to suspicions that Alan is taking advantage of his mother. We have Dale Lacey. We meet Terry O'Quinn's Dale Lacey on his last day on the job as the warden of Shawshank. He makes breakfast for his blind wife, but he doesn't go to work as expected. He parks at the edge of the same bluff near which Henry Deaver was found almost three decades ago, loops a noose around his neck, and floors it, snapping his head off as he goes off the cliff. When the next warden arrives arrives, a closed-off part of the prison is opened to reveal what appears to be the chamber of a monster holding the body of an emaciated young man. Was the warden a kidnapper? Who is his mysterious prisoner? The Shawshank Prisoner. He has no name yet. He's called the Kid in some reviews of the show. 
and has only said the words Henry Deaver, but he's clearly important to the plot of Castle Rock. And not just because he's portrayed by the man also known as Pennywise the Clown from It, Bill Skarsgård. From the minute he's found, there's something disturbing about this silent man, and it even appears that he may have supernatural abilities, as the final scenes of Severance feature an officer watching him open gates, stare at the security camera, and leave dead bodies of other prisoners in his wake after possibly disappearing entirely. Could this character be the classic king archetype of the mysterious stranger who comes to town with evil powers? The devil in human form? And why did Warden Lacey not only have him in an abandoned water tank, but tell him to say Henry Deaver when people found him? Molly Strand. We don't know yet much about uh, Melanie Linsky's Molly Strand, but she has a truly bizarre connection to Henry Deaver that will obviously resurface. After a casual scene in which she buys some drugs from a local teen, she spots Henry getting off a bus and looks shaken. Later, she sets a timer before going through a box related to Henry Deaver, including a missing poster from when he was gone and a jacket. It appears almost supernatural, as if she has some sort of special connection to Henry or what happened to him when he was a child. And what's up with the timer? What would happen if she didn't get the belongings back in the box before it ran out? We don't know much about Molly yet, but she's sure to play a major role in future episodes. Other familiar faces. It's shocking enough to see lost star Terry O'Quinn killed in the opening scenes, although he's likely to appear a few times in flashbacks. However, there are other familiar faces on the edge of the show who will likely resurface. There's Emmy nominee Francis Conroy as Lacey's now widow, Ozark co-star Charlie Tahan as Molly's dealer, Anne Cusack as the new warden, and shameless star Noel Fisher as the corrections officer who actually calls Henry and really sets the plot in motion. They're all likely to return to this already complex narrative. Castle Rock is just getting started. Um, Alan Pangborn, played by Scott Glenn, was played by Ed Harris in the film version of Needful Things and Michael Rooker in the film version of The Dark Half. Impress your friends with the trivia answer to what do Ed Harris, Michael Rooker, and Scott Glenn have in common? So that's from Vulture. Um, okay, guys, let me get into to my thoughts. So before I talk about my review of, of Castle Rock, um, let's talk about the build-up to Castle Rock. So in February of, what, 2017, um, February 19th, I believe, um, I expected a... Expected a, a, a Dark Tower teaser, something related to Dark Tower. Instead, we got the the teaser for Castle Rock, and it is the the most celebratory Stephen King teaser um, that I have ever experienced. It's fantastic, and for those of you who who haven't uh, seen it, just YouTube Castle Rock uh, teaser, and it's amazing. It's amazing. Uh, so from there, it just our curiosity was piqued. What was this? Um, and and you know, eventually it came out that it was going to be an anthology set within the Castle Rock, playing up the history of Castle Rock and telling new stories, which is such an ingenious way of going about telling Stephen King stories. Because as you all know, we are leaving, we are living in a, a Stephen King renaissance. We are living in the, the, the kingdom of the king. And I'm happy to say that because back in 2014, which didn't seem like that long ago, I... Uh, it, it was not what it is now. Um, we, we were not living in an age in which Stephen King had the pull. Now, I grew up in an age where Stephen King was the name, and Stephen King had pull, and his brand um, was synonymous with 
horror and I don't want to necessarily say quality because there was a lot of early 90s Stephen King trash that was made. I mean, and it's fun. Like, a lot of this stuff is fun and it's fun to watch, but um, I'm talking about the adaptations. But, I mean, Stephen King was a... He was in. That was that was a thing. And then I remember, and I've mentioned this before, I remember walking through Best Buy and picking up uh, the, the movie Mercy starring Coral from The Walking Dead and... It's an uh, adaptation of the, the short story Grandma, but nowhere on it did say, based on the works of Stephen King, they were hiding it. Um, and that, to me, was a signifier that something was wrong in the multiverse. If, if Coral from The Walking Dead, um, if the producers of Paranormal Activity, I think, were getting top billing and Stephen King's name was just shoved down in the credits section on, on the, the back of the box... Something was wrong here, and uh, I just wanted to start a conversation that would, you know, help put him back in, in the cultural conversation. I'm not saying that that, that I, I did that, that came across really arrogant, but um, thank God that, you know, four years later, five years later, we're looking at a time where it is the, the Stephen King um, renaissance. Um, he is back on top of his game. He might even be bigger than he ever was before um, because studios are like tearing at each other's throats to to get to IP in order to continue this um, Stephen King uh, renaissance. You know, the, I, I just recently released an episode as referenced in one of the emails of all of the upcoming Stephen King adaptations. So this is not going to slow down anytime soon. I think it's it's going to actually pick... I mean, just the other day, I think yesterday or the day before, Mr. Mercedes... No, not Mr. Mercedes. Uh, another car one um, from a Buick A is going to be made into a movie. So that's another one that we can add um, to the list. I just saw on Twitter uh, Gabriel Rodriguez, Joe Hill's son, uh, sorry, Joe Hill's collaborator, Joe Hill being Stephen King's son, just tweeted out Netflix's lock and key um, image. So that isn't necessarily related to uh, a Stephen King work, but it's in the family, literally. Um, So I think that when you get works by Joe Hill out there, we have Nosferatu coming up. It's still part of the larger Stephen King movement right now. I think that Joe Hill's work stand on its own, but I think that this is when we see the family King um, doing well for themselves. I, I think that it, it's it's just a good time to be a Stephen King fan. So I wouldn't be surprised. You know, we have The Outsider coming out as a television show, and uh, we have Elevation, or is that the name of it? Elation coming out in, in, the, uh, in the fall on Halloween, and I wouldn't be surprised if that gets picked up. And then we're just waiting. I, I need Steven Spielberg to say that he's going to release um, a Talisman movie, and that's going to... That's going to be big. If that happens and Steven Spielberg decides to do it, that is huge, huge news. Right up there with all of the news that generated around it. Um, So we've been living in a great time, all right? Um, There's been a a lot of conversations around the works of Stephen King. There has been a big interest and a big push in uh, Stephen King adaptations, and that's awesome. But the build-up to Castle Rock was different, all right? It's on a different level of the tower. And it's because it isn't necessarily an adaptation of one Stephen King book or a Stephen King novella or short story, um, but it is a celebration 
of everything that Stephen King has done. It takes um, an interpretation of who Stephen King is based on all of the works he's ever done and the voice that he has created for himself and the mythology that he has created and the, the imprint of, of himself that he has placed upon our pop culture consciousness and the way in which he has affected generations of storytellers and generations of readers. And all of this is now distilled to an original work that plays tribute to and respectfully comments upon the past while pushing his most famous town into the future. And that is a very interesting um, choice to make. And it's one that I am so glad that Sam Shaw and Dustin Tomlinson um, chose. I'm glad that they made this choice rather than adapting known Stephen King stories or books. I love the fact that I get to sit down every week and watch an episode that takes place in Castle Rock in 2018 on television and have my television show taking place in 2018 make reference to or just know that it exists in a town, in a world where the events of the novels and the short stories had taken place. That is, I mean, has that really ever happened before? I don't recall that ever truly happening. This seems unique to me, and it makes it that much more exciting to be a part of. So I was really looking forward to Castle Rock based on what the premise of Castle Rock was. And uh, there was just a lot of good buzz. All the trailers have been great. The cast is phenomenal. The cast is absolutely phenomenal. And then the days, we're, we're counting down to um, the 25th. I'm actually recording it on the 25th of July. I stayed up last night um, at midnight, even though I had to go to work the next day. But I needed to at least watch one of the episodes. They released three, but I needed to watch at least one of them. Um, I could not. I, I would have lost my Stephen King uh fan card if I didn't stay up and watch it. Um, so I was just counting down the days. And then on top of that, Hulu released a documentary, The Search for Castle Rock, which is like a half an hour long. Guys, go out and watch it. It's on YouTube. It's great. It's great. It's really well done. There's a, you know, the, the showrunners are in it for a little bit. They kind of, you, you kind of get a sense of who they are as fans and, and their approach to it. Um, you have other Stephen King fans um, that, that work in the Stephen King world um, that are able to comment on it. And you have, as I said earlier in this episode, that I was going to talk about this guy, but Stu, all right? Stu gives you a taste of what SK Tours does. Stu Tinker, who is in charge of the Stephen King Tours in, in Bangor, Maine, and a Stephen King expert, you, you, get, to, you get to meet Stu. So um, I was watching it. My wife was walking by, and I just... Um, shout out, I'm like, hey, it's Stu. And she's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, it's Stu. And you know, she looks at the TV and she goes, oh, it's our Stu. And I'm like, yeah, um, it's our Stu. That was a, an awesome present that she gave me a couple years back. Um, and it's a present that I think that you should give to yourselves if you are a Stephen King fan. So it was just, it's really, really well done. It celebrates Stephen King. It kind of gives a glimpse into the, 
uh, inspirations for some of Stephen King's work and, and how it all um, bleeds into Castle Rock. But not just Castle Rock, but Derry gets actually a, a huge chunk of the documentary and as it examines what towns mean to Stephen King. And you can't really talk about towns within Stephen King's works or philosophies without talking about Derry itself. So uh, I, if you are a Stephen King fan and, and you haven't watched The Search for Castle Rock, watch it. Watch it. It's a quick view, but it's definitely one that's worth it. And it whet my appetite um, as I looked forward to the, the first episode. And then I waited for it to arrive. And right away, I just had this huge smile on my face um, as we see that it's a flashback to 1991. Um, and the early 90s to me, that, oh, that's when we said goodbye to Castle Rock um, because Needful Things came out in 1990 or 1991. So to pick up immediately after that time period, that was meaningful to me that we're going that that far back. Um, it felt appropriate knowing that the story was going to take place in the present day Um you know, allowed us to understand this is a flashback, but it's a perfect way to kick off a show called Castle Rock that's going to pay tribute to this town created by Stephen King, um, picking up where Stephen King uh, sensibly had left off. And through the action of the scene itself, we see a, a man walking through snow, but he's not just walking. And there's, as I've long said on this show, you know, there is a huge difference between showing and telling, um, and the viewer gets a sense of who this man is through the actions that he is taking. He's trekking through the snow. He's poking at the ground. Um, he's clearly looking for something, and the dread that uh, falls over him when he finds something uh, firmly tells us that he does not want to find what he's looking for. Um, he finds a body. It just doesn't happen to be a, a human one, and for those in the know... Uh, we know who this is, but for non-King fans, the actions that we see him for less than a minute tell us everything that we need to know um, about him, um, that he is a good person trying to find something awful. And that, to me, speaks volumes about Alan Pangborn, who constantly places himself in emotional turmoil because it is his job, because he knows that it is just right with a capital R. Um, it's the right thing to do, even at the expense of his happiness, his well-being, his sanity. Um, and we'll talk about what this might ultimately do to, to, to Alan um, in a little bit. But the, the landscape itself is it's very, very lonely. Um, so for those of you who don't know, a lot of this was filmed in Orange, uh, Massachusetts. Not Maine, but Mass. Um, and the, 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 the setting here is, is phenomenal. Every aspect that we see of Castle Rock is, is really, really done, well done from the, the main street to, uh, to, this, uh, to the wilderness itself. And as he looks over this bluff um, into the, the lake, we hear a noise. Now, um, as Stephen King fans, are we supposed to think... The first thing I thought of was the Wendigo from Pet Cemetery, um, And the reason why maybe it, it immediately came to mind was because the documentary, The Search for Castle Rock, had referenced a curse that the Native Americans around the Durham area where Stephen King had grown up 
um, well, it was, it, it was, there was some sort of curse that was based on, a an incident that had occurred, um, in, in, uh, in a river. So from a synergy standpoint, you know, why would this documentary include this little tidbit? Um, should we expect future reference to the Micmac Indians later in the series? That's immediately what came to mind. Now, regardless of the Stephen King universal aspect to it, it's an effective sequence. The noise itself that we hear is it's unnatural, it's dangerous, it's strange. And because Alan is so far away from civilization at this point, there is this palpable sense of danger. And then we, uh, you know, he 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 sees. Henry Deaver on the ice where Henry Deaver hadn't been. It's just one of those effective moments. Something wrong is occurring. Um, something supernatural clearly is at play. Um, and Alan, though not referenced here in the story, um, Alan is no stranger to supernatural activity. Whether or not that is going to be referenced or played up, um, that is something that is going to be seen um, but for me, if I am treating this as a continuation, um, it's just one more go around on this, uh, on this carousel for, for Sheriff Pangborn. And then we get our credits, which lead to the transition to 2018. Um, the camera establishes this town, um, and focusing on, on the ruins. So let's think about this for a second. Now, what made Castle Rock distinct from Derry is that Derry was at its heart a an evil place, and Derry was a um, a city, a city, not necessarily a small town. Whereas Castle Rock was always a small town, and it had um, sort of small town sensibilities, and he was able to explore that. So I always pictured it like we had our city setting and then we had our small town setting and the this version of castle rock seems to be um a combination of the two which makes sense with what we have gotten from castle rock and and the snippets and references to castle rock in the decades since needful things um there's just a recent story about a walmart being in castle rock it kind of you get the sense that the town itself is expanding um, while dying at the same time, much like a star, um, you know, the, the, the star uh, will get bigger as its core shrinks. And I feel that that's what's occurring here with, with Castle Rock itself. Um, so we definitely get some shots of the, the desolation of Castle Rock, the, um, the, the sense that it's, it's really, really winding down. Um, there's buildings that are just literal ruins and other buildings that we see, there's a desolation to them. Um, and uncoincidentally, if we're talking about ruin and we see ruin, our, our first character in the present day is Terry O'Quinn. Now, guys, Terry O'Quinn. When I heard that Terry O'Quinn was in this show, I went over the moon. This is John Locke. Okay, now I've long said that, you know, if there, there are... So many podcasts that I could do. I'm currently doing another one based on my love of Twin Peaks. Um, the only other one that I can think of would be Lost. But there's no need because Matt Lafferty um, already did the Lost podcast that I would have done looking back at Lost. 
um, which you all should check out if you are fans of of Lost um, and and much of what the Stephen King is Stephen King cast is 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 based on the structure and the format of what Matt had given me and given all of us with uh, with looking back at Lost. So John Locke is one of the greatest television characters ever created, um, and wouldn't have been one of the greatest television characters ever created if it wasn't for Terry O'Quinn, who was able to do so much. Uh, he has such a quiet performer but he radiates so much emotion and power and strength and vulnerability he's just able to do so much um so whenever he shows up in anything i am there for it 100 whether it's um stepfather whether it is when he was on millennium he was one of my favorite parts of millennium um whether it's the rocketeer playing howard hughes um, or whether it's here in, uh, in Castle Rock. So, you know, seeing Terry O'Quinn on screen is, is, is phenomenal. But the, it's a great pairing of the, the ruin of Castle Rock and Terry O'Quinn based on what we're going to see from his character, Dale Lacey, um, in a little bit. So we, we meet his wife, played by uh, Frances Conroy of Six Feet Under fame, um, and I'm looking forward to seeing more from her. And I'm looking forward to seeing these two actors bounce off of each other more in flashbacks. And it has to be flashbacks, unfortunately, because, as we know, Dale Lacey doesn't have long. Um, so we see that he's a good man. At least that's what we think. I don't know what future episodes will hold, um, or even by the end of this episode, with the revelation that we are given. But, uh, you know, with the breakfast in bed, it's a very, very sweet thing. And he has a, that look on his face, a, a sadness, and we get the sense that today is his last day at work. We will learn that he is the warden, but that's not necessarily why he's sad. He is given, he's giving his wife her final, you know, breakfast in bed, and he's ultimately saying goodbye to her. And, you know, we, he drives through town not to his job, but um, to his place of rest, and uh, again, we get some really good shots of the town. And as he overlooks the, the, the lake where Alan Pangborn had stood decades before, clearly about to kill himself, um, with the, as we see with the noose, a sheepdog emerges from the woods. Um, it's not a St. Bernard, but we have a character in a car with a very large dog outside of the car that is definitely intended to invoke Cujo. Um, so sheepdogs are so aren't inherently scary. So it is the fact that it isn't a St. Bernard or a growling, threatening creature, the, the fact that it is this big fluffy guy um, lends a surrealism to the, to the scene. Um, now, Here's my prediction. Again, I have not seen episodes two or three yet, but my prediction is this is some sort of projection from the kid character um, because evil, devilish figures controlling wildlife um, is not new to the Stephen King universe. We have seen this before with Randall Flagg. We have seen this with Tack. And there's enough evidence in this first episode alone that... um, the kid is keeping an eye on, on Terry O'Quinn. Um, the, the death itself is very brutal, even though we don't see much. O'Quinn's face is so emotive, but so subtle in his death scene when he looks at the dog. You know, I, I didn't catch it the first time, but like rewatching it because I watched it two times. I watched this episode last night and then again today. Um, you know, 
what is his facial expression revealing to us? Is he a man who has finally come to peace? What is that final look right before he puts the metal, the pedal to the metal? Is it defiance? I don't know. But watch that scene again because there is an emotion change within Terry O'Quinn that I, I admire. Again, it goes back to his ability um, as an actor. As the, the car sinks, we get the, the camera zooming in on the Shawshank prison bumper sticker, and it segues perfectly to the looming prison itself, shrouded in early morning mist. We are introduced not just to the prison, but the new warden who has taken over. And it appears that the prison has been brought, bought out by a private company. For a less haunting version of this, you can watch uh, Orange is the New Black over on Netflix. I'm really looking forward to the new season uh, coming out this Friday. So uh, Thomason and Shaw make a point for us and the director, whose name I can't remember, uh, to pay attention to Noel Fisher's correctional officer, Dennis Zaleski, um, who, appears, who appears to be um, an ordered but good-natured presence on the show. And through his conversation with the new warden, he and his CEO buddy are tasked with exploring the burned-out ruins of the section of the prison that had been caught in a Christmas Day fire in 1987. And this is where we get the, the, the big reveal of the episode, that this prison, this, this fire section that has been um, abandoned is housing a secret. So they have this secret within the walls of Shawshank Prison. That's awesome. That is such a good move on their part to do, that, you know, this... You can have a devil character show up anywhere, and it's, you know, in, in a Stephen King book or a story the devil can come to town we've seen that before um but to have this character located in stephen king's most famous building uh that is that's the way to do a story like this and i had major props to uh the showrunners on that now the 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 bill skarsgård reveal is Really, really well done. The the way that Noel Fisher is, is walking through, finding the, uh, the 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 ladder down to this secret layer, um, finding the cigarette butts. That's just very eerie. Seeing that this place that had been ruined and abandoned um, hasn't necessarily been left alone. Um, to the quick shot of of his eyes in the darkness. Um, as we all know, Bill Skarsgård's eyes in the darkness are a terrifying thing. And this new character, who IMDb refers to as the kid, um, you know, this he is a strange new character who only grows stranger. He winds up uttering uh, two words, Henry Deaver, and what his relationship to the boy on the ice from 1991 will be the driving mystery of this season. And it is a strong mystery. Um, so already we're halfway through this episode and uh, the showrunners are doing a phenomenal job at generating mysteries um, and luring us in. Now this leads to the adult reveal of Henry, a lawyer attempting to get his client off of death row. Just as the action of the show revealed the character trait of Alan Pangborn in the 91 flashback, the action in the present reveals Henry to be a good man trying to do what he can while also working in a flawed system. He has a kind and sad final meal with his client, who is then sentenced to death with lethal injection, and it does not go well at all. And we really get a sense of him and, and his indignation and his anger um, as uh, the, the, the doctors or whoever is giving lethal injection um, just go ahead and, and 
try again, even though that's not the procedure. And he's, you know, smashing a chair against the, the window, but it's all futile. You know, he might as well just not have been there at all. And so that helplessness, that's a great way to show his helplessness. Um, and it, it invokes him being 11 years old. And we get the sense of, of the helplessness that has um, shadowed him his entire life. He then goes to an, al- an alligator park, and I'm, I'm kind of fuzzy on the rationale here. Um, it leads to a moment with him facing off with an alligator. Um, certainly, it's a striking image. I'm just not entirely sure why he went there. Now, about the alligator, um, it to me, it invoked uh, Wind Through the Keyhole and Duma Key. Those are two uh, stories with memorable um, alligator scenes in them. Uh, and what is this? Is this, are we led to believe that this is the, the kid keeping an eye on Henry, um, warning Henry, luring Henry in? Um, I just get the sense that, uh, even though it, uh, walks like an alligator and talks like an alligator, it's not necessarily just an alligator. It's there where he's called by, um, Noel Fisher, uh, who gives him the information that he needs to come home. And as Henry makes his way back home, we meet Molly Strand. Uh, who was buying drugs off a teen. Uh, We don't learn much about Molly here, other than she seems to be well enough put together, uh, despite the fact that she's buying drugs off kids. But whoever she is, not only does she recognize Henry as he steps off the bus, but she clearly has a reaction, and she does not want to be seen by him. As she drives away, not wanting to be seen, we get this wonderful shot um, of the camera panning from one street to the next, giving us a good sense of the, the physical... Um, layout of Castle Rock and the real-life stand-in of Orange, Massachusetts. Henry makes his way through town, encountering closed businesses and a sense of a town that hasn't just been run down, um, but its spirit uh, is is running down as well. As I said before, I mean, it's feeling very, very dairy in a way. Um, And if you were to ask me what town it feels more like, I would probably say dairy. But like I said, it makes sense because... um, you know, we, we witnessed the end of what Castle Rock was and had been back in Needful Things, and anything that could have flourished um, didn't seem to, to make it out of that encounter with Leland Gaunt um, and all the subsequent references to Castle Rock in, in books and short stories. It painted a town that seemed to continually um, lose its identity. You know, what's interesting is that King has often, not often, but always dealt with politics um, and the state of the world um, has always been reflected in his in his characters and uh, his conflicts. So to see a small town um, not living, not, not having the, the respect um, and, and, and the respectable uh, way about itself that it once had, um, the fact that it seems to have lost something and it seems to be being forgotten about, I, I think that speaks very prevalently to a lot of small towns in 2018. And, and I think that that speaks to, you know, how, how some politicians are, are able to really use that as, as, a, as a platform. Um, unfortunately, I, I never really see too much good um, coming from, from it. Um, politicians don't really seem to, to care much about these small towns. Um, but to me, it, it seems very truthful 
to, to who Stephen King is as a writer because Stephen King has always been someone who focuses on um, everyday people and uh, relatable people and to see relatable people struggling and being forgotten about um, is very in keeping with Stephen King's uh, creation of stories taking place in a recognizable reality. Now, Henry returns home, but not before first attempting to see the gravesite of his father, which is now missing. And upon returning home, we meet Ruth, his adoptive mother, who was played by the OG Stephen King alum, Sissy Spacek, Carrie White herself, who is suffering from Alzheimer's. Now, uh, we get a, without much between um, Andre Holland and Sissy Spacek, we get a lot of information just in the way that they interact with each other. There is definitely a guilt within Andre Holland for having left this town and having left his mother in the state that she's in. There's also a great moment, just a small moment, where he comes in and there's a a frying pan, a cast iron frying pan on the stove and it's burning and instinctively, you know, he touches it. Even though, you know, he doesn't think in that moment it's going to be hot. And, you know, he burns himself and it's not made a big deal out of, but uh, I just, I, I like, uh, I just, I like that moment. It's a little moment. Um, so it's going to be fun watching Sissy Spacek embody this role um, and wonder if she is going to uh, play in any way some sort of riff on the Piper Laurie character um, because the, the Sissy Spacek should, she's no stranger to crazy Stephen King mothers, right? So I'm not saying that people with Alzheimer's are crazy, but the, having the dementia could allow for some some danger and unpredictability, which is something that had always marked Margaret White. So I'm just, because of who Sissy Spacek is as an actress and the connotation that she has within the world of Stephen King, I, I wonder um, if she is going to be a, a, an innocent who is vulnerable or if um, something is going to occur with her um, that is going to put her as some sort of dangerous influence upon others, um, much in the way that Margaret White had been. Now, um, fans of the show will know that I adore Alan Pangborn. Um, I've always been struck by his quiet strength and his dignity and uh, his stoicism in the face of, of his, his tragedies. So spoiler alert for Needful Things and for The Dark Half, but this is a character whose wife had been battling cancer um, and who, due to, um, due to the cancer and its effect on, on her mind, um, unfortunately, if I'm remembering correctly, or regardless, doesn't matter. I mean, she had suffered from cancer, and then um, there was a car crash um, that took her and the life of her their son. Um, and this is something that um, weighed heavily upon the heart and soul of Alan Pangborn in needful things. And um, there seems to be a happy ending for Alan um, in in later. In later stories, there were references first through um, Norris Ridgwick and then um, uh, I can't remember. I can't remember the current um, uh, Castle Rock Sheriff. Uh, I, 
hopefully right now there are Stephen King fans that are just screaming his name. Um, but he was one of the other uh, officers at the time when Alan was the uh, was the chief. But he Alan was um, followed by his deputy Norris, who was then followed by one of the other um, officers. But through through the two of them, we we have gotten snippets of the life of of Alan Pangborn. And um, I know at one point he and Polly Chalmers had moved, so you got the sense that they were happy that they that maybe they had escaped. Um, the, the curse of Castle Rock, and they had um, shook off their their own personal tragedies and, and made a life for themselves. Well, seeing Alan um, come out of the shadows in this house wearing another man's clothes, um, it was off-putting to me because he was someone that um, I had admired, and I and he's someone, as you know, I, I wanted more stories with. Well, I'm glad that I'm getting not just a story with Alan Pangborn, but one being played by uh, Scott Glenn, who's awesome. Scott Glenn playing Alan Pangborn is fantastic. Scott Glenn in his prime would have made an incredible Alan Pangborn to take place in Needful Things or or The Dark Half. Um, not to take away from Michael Rooker or Ed Harris, because Ed Harris to me is Alan Pangborn, but uh, Scott Glenn definitely could have had, because I, I think what's important about Alan is that he is in another life, in another world, on another level of the tower, he is a gunslinger. Um, and, and that's important to note. He is definitely an agent of the white. So to see him bitter and seemingly cynical seems to be a, a, a defeated Alan that kind of hurts my heart. I am not, it's not a criticism. I want to make that perfectly clear. Um, just because I'm not getting a version of the character how I want that character to be, that is not a criticism. That is not a, um, I don't believe that that is valid criticism. I think that that has been shouted out too much um, in regards to let's just say The Last Jedi. Um, you know, I personally uh, really enjoyed Ryan Johnson's decision-making. Um, I thought that it made for an incredibly thrilling, captivating, engaging, subversive movie experience. Um, and similarly, I'm doing an 18-episode podcast on Twin Peaks The Return, and you know, we got versions of our characters that broke our hearts um, on a number of occasions um, in order for us to get the best possible story. So I imagine that that's what the showrunners are doing here. So for for fans of Alan Pangborn, I am I'm very curious to see if uh, they are going to explore uh, what occurred in the life of this uh, who had someone that had been a hero and and how he had fallen and and grown what seems to be cynical and and pessimistic um and if polly will be referenced or if this is something that they're just kind of either sweep out of the rug or retcon or if it will be proof that this isn't um fully a continuation of the stephen king books or but some sort of um combination of sort of like cherry-picking the best of and then discarding some other elements. Um, it could be that. It, it could definitely be that um, as well. So we will find out, but that is something that I uh, definitely struck me as, as I watched it. 
And then back in the prison, we see Bill Skarsgård's eyes following a mouse as it makes its way to a mouse trap. Now, the question is, is he simply watching what happens or is he forcing the mouse to um, walk its way to its death with the presence of the first the sheepdog and then later the alligator? Um, I'd bet that he is able to control animals, which, as I said, is a long-honored Stephen King villain tradition, whether it be flag, whether it be tack. Now, Henry arrives to Shawshank to meet with the warden about the phone call he received, but she's not budging, but he's not stupid. He knows that something's up, and watching these two play off of each other is something that I'm going to look forward to. And then the episode concludes with the supernatural breakout um, of the kid. Now, this scene, guys... This is a scene. This is done so, so well. It is creepy. It keeps cutting back between the prison to Henry to um, Molly Strand. And then Noel at the prison who is looking through a baby, um, a baby name book, which I don't know. I don't know. I I don't think that's not really pointing out uh, a good future for him. If he's looking through a baby book now, I have a sense that he's going to be dying real soon. Uh, But when you see the... The, the the empty cell and then it's cutting to the other cameras and there are bodies on the floor and he's making his way through the, the corridors. That's haunting. And there is a huge sense of danger that you just expected uh, Skarsgård to show up in the door um, right behind Noel Fisher. Um, and that would have been an effective way to conclude the episode because he is, without having much to do in this episode or much to say, um, I, I just, I really like this actor, and uh, I, I think that, as I said, he, he has an, a quiet strength about him um, that I, I, I want to see him be an active force for good, and I didn't want to see him get taken off the board so quickly. But had he been, that would have been an effective way to play up uh, the kid's danger. And then the, the, the episode concludes, guys, and immediately I wanted to watch the next episode, but no, I had to go to bed. Uh, but tonight, um, I will be watching episode two and getting my thoughts down for a review for next week. But guys, I had high expectations. And for those of you who had listened to my review of 112263, the previous Hulu Stephen King, uh, series, I, um, I wasn't as hot on it as I wanted to be. Um, so as excited as I was about Castle Rock, I also had some trepidation, um, about it just based on what the, the other J.J. Abrams, uh, series had been. But, um, like I said, the showrunners doing this, uh, this show seemed to have a firm handle on how to tell a, an original Stephen King work while paying tribute to the past without letting the Easter eggs be... Um, too distracting and being celebratory in some ways and letting them shape characters for the sake of the story, which is key. That's that's the key component, and they're able to balance that well so it doesn't necessarily fall into the realm of fan fiction. So, guys, I am really looking forward to this. I'm glad that I have a summer show to be pumped about. Last year it was Twin Peaks The Return. Um, you can get all my thoughts on Twin Peaks The Return uh, by listening to Hate, Hanging with Agent Cooper. So I'm really looking forward to um, the rest of Castle Rock. But before I conclude this episode, I want to get to um, the Kingisms and the uh, Easter eggs that were present um, in this episode. So um, there were some Stephen King episodes, uh, Stephen Kingisms. Now, Stephen Kingisms are tricks and traits and tropes that we see from Stephen King works. And uh, the, the first one that comes to mind is 
a childhood mystery returning to haunt the adults. Now, we have seen this with um, most famously It, uh, but knowing that a mystery occurred with Henry Deaver when he was 11, um, and now he, the adult version of that, that character is going to have to come face-to-face with that mystery and whatever happened that is very in, in line with Stephen King. Um, another Stephen Kingism is Bill Skarsgård in a subterranean lair, and that is a very recent uh, Stephen Kingism. And for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, just watch It from 2017. And then, of course, we have the, the something occurring with a child. Um, that has long been a Stephen King uh, trope, um, and we're seeing that here with, uh, with Henry Deaver. Now, on to the fun stuff. On to the Easter eggs. Here are some shout-outs and references to Stephen King works. Of course, as a character, we have Alan Pangborn, um, and I've already talked about Alan Pangborn, Shawshank Prison, and not even Shawshank Prison. There is a direct reference to Warden Norton and the bullet in the wall um, from when uh, Warden Norton died. Now, that's that was great, and it's a great shout-out to uh, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption or the Shawshank Redemption if you're a fan of the movie, um, but I would say that the reference isn't at the expense of the the moment in in the show because it is a new warden coming in and it this new warden is coming in because the previous warden had killed himself so yes it does make sense that the character that's speaking is going to reference hey this is kind of a thing that happens to our wardens around here here's another example that it, it felt very in line with the characters so again it wasn't a reference that was sh- that, that that came out of nowhere um, also the, the, the music, and I didn't, this is not something that I picked up on, but this was something that I, I read about, uh, the, the music that was playing in Terry O'Quinn's car as he killed himself was also the music that famously, uh, Tim Robbins was listening to in that scene in Rita Hayward, in the Shawshank Redemption, when he took control of the, um, prison's speakers and, and, and played the, the, the opera, and that is what Terry O'Quinn is listening to. So similarly, uh, you know, in that moment, Tim Robbins was trapped in a location, but he was able to be, for that moment, free. And is that is that what is occurring with Terry O'Quinn in that moment? Um, is he trapped in a situation that he cannot control, but is about to be free? That is an interesting interpretation. Um, again, I had mentioned the, the dog emerging, a large dog standing outside of someone in a car definitely invokes Cujo. And though the, uh, the cold mountain penitentiary, uh, death row is not in this movie, but when Henry is working as a lawyer in Texas and he goes to, uh, see his client who is on death row that invokes the green mile. Um, and if that, if you disagreed with that, then I need to point out the color of the tile in that scene. It is green. Um, so that is definitely meant to invoke, uh, the green mile. Uh, the number six Easter egg is the number 19. Um, the number 19 is not a lucky number for uh, characters in the world of Stephen King. And uh, in reference to Dale Lacey, uh, it is described that not everybody handles the 19th hole very well. So it's very in keeping with what 19 means in in the world of Stephen King. 
Uh, number seven is Sissy Spacek and Bill Skarsgård. Um, this is really cool if you think about it because we have our earliest Stephen King actress and our latest Stephen King actor um, in uh, the show. So we, we kind of have the bookends here of, of the, the, the actors of Stephen King. And then we have the, the bad death of insert prisoner name here, um, a.k.a. a faulty execution. So the, the bad death of uh, Delacroix uh, was something that occurred in the, Shaw, in, um, the Green Mile. Uh, and we, we get uh, the, the bad death of Henry Deaver's client here. Um, similarly, we have a mouse in the prison. And this isn't Mr. Jingles, but come on, you have a mouse um, in a cell block that is definitely meant to invoke Mr. Jingles. And we have railroad tracks. I mean, there is a moment that the camera uh, makes the point to show railroad tracks, which uh, famously factored into the classic Castle Rock story, The Body, um, a.k.a. Stand By Me. So Easter eggs galore, guys. And I look forward to, to, to looking at some more Easter eggs with the, the, the subsequent two episodes that are available now. So guys, thank you for, for listening to this hour and a half long episode. And if you haven't been... Uh, if you have listened to this and haven't checked out Castle Rock, stop what you're doing and go watch Castle Rock. If you are a fan of Stephen King, um, I think that you'll enjoy it. And I enjoy looking forward to the experience of sitting down uh, once a week and getting a dose of Castle Rock. That's a, it's a fantastic time to be a Stephen King fan. Okay, guys. So with all that out of the way, I will be back next week. Feel free to write in to stephenkingcast at yahoo.com and leave a review on iTunes. And um, may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I will see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen Kingcast.